0: There's a serious proposal out there to cut $1 trillion from the defense budget. Won't that leave us vulnerable? How crazy is that? I'm Burt Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely.
1: Call a code. Get an back from the nurse's station.
0: Heart heart's still working means the are still
1: firing. We just need to get a message through. Prosperity for the few, the rights of U.S. corporations to extract from the land of Central America and exploit the people of Central America. I speak tonight for the d- d- dignity of man.
0: This just in from today's New Republic: No war, no problem. Senna prepares to shovel another pile of money at the Pentagon. The upper body is moving forward with its regular round of defense spending. Kim Jong-un's North Korea is, of course, consumed with looking tough, spending all its incredibly limited resources on the latest weapon systems. And what of the people of North Korea? Close to the world, we hear stories of near-total suffering from lack of food and anything, really. In massive shows of military might punctuated by showy displays of new and ever more advanced weapons delivery systems, the people in charge there are likely puffed up with satisfaction over their definition of national security. But with people kept in the dark, suffering food shortages, and who knows what other deprivations, theirs is an extremely narrow definition of national security. Luckily, we don't live in North Korea— But as our leaders in Washington wrangle over pennies in Biden's Build Back Better legislation, it's the same old carte blanche for the Pentagon and the private weapons contractors. North Korea spends wildly on the military, but we know the definition of national security means far more than that. Or do we? Every year, Congress hands the Pentagon a blank check. The so-called defense budget seems to be just about the only thing our Congress agrees on. But could it be that our always-rubber-stamped spending for weapons may actually be a real threat to our national security? Can we Americans ever get a better perspective on what actually enhances our national security? Do we really need to keep driving down the road of a multi-decade, $2 trillion modernization of an already gargantuan nuclear arsenal? Might there be another road? In his new article on Tom Dispatch, our returning guest, William Hartung, asks, Reigning the Pentagon, can it possibly happen? William Hartung is a Tom Tom Dispatch regular and director of the Arms and Security Program at the Center for International Policy, the author of the newly published Profits of War, Corporate Beneficiaries of the Post-9-11 Surge in Pentagon Spending. Bill Hartung, thanks so much for being back with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Quite a subject here.
1: Yes, always a pleasure to talk to you.
0: Some of us are old enough to remember the tales of $600 hammers and crazy expensive toilet seats. That was like 40 years ago. I don't know. These items were easy to see examples of military waste and corruption. But in reality, those tiny examples were used to get attention away from the big picture. So politicians could serve themselves by very publicly coming out against such things while voting for ever more stratospheric but sacrosanct Pentagon budgets. Your essay argues for real cuts. You cite a new report from the Congressional Budget Office, which outlined three different ways to cut one trillion dollars from Department of Defense spending over the next decade. That sounds like a huge, entirely unrealistic suggestion until one looks at the defense budget supported by the democratically controlled House of Representatives for the next year. Tell us about that, please, in historical context.
1: There was a little bit of hope when Biden was a candidate that maybe he would at least come in with a slight decrease in Pentagon spending. Um, And in the event, He actually added $11 billion to the last Trump budget for the Pentagon, which kept it around inflation, but nonetheless, uh, $750 billion for the Pentagon and related work on nuclear warheads at the Department of Energy. Uh, That's far more than was spent during the height of the Korean War or the Vietnam War or the Reagan buildup of the 80s, only exceeded in the Obama term at the peak of the Iraq and Afghan wars, when there was 180,000 US troops in the war zones. So Biden is already starting at this historically high level, uh, a huge amount of expenditures in the Pentagon. And then Congress said, oh no.
0: It's not enough.
1: (laughs) Right, at least the hawks who are carrying the day at the moment said, let's add another 25 billion. I'll take your 750 and I'll see you another 25 billion. So that's where we are now. There's a fight in the Senate. uh, They're going to talk about the National Defense Authorization Act, whether that can be rolled back. But it's looking like, at least for this year, uh, the Hawks are going to win that fight.
0: As they seem to do pretty often. It's one thing that uh, most every member of Congress uh, can seemingly agree on. And, you know, when we talk about billions and trillions, the mind really can't get a handle on on what that means. This may help put it in perspective. I read about this. A billion, of course, is a thousand million, which strikes me as a lot of money. A trillion, of course, is a thousand billion or a million million. And to picture it, if you stacked it in $100 bills, a trillion dollars, it would weigh about just over 11,000 tons. And since a big... Semi truck can haul, haul about 40 tons. One would need 276 semis to carry a trillion dollars. In Washington now, people like West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin are balking at the price tag for Biden's two big items. The war making budget for 2022, as you said, is around $750, Seven hundred. $50 billion, while Build Back Better is $175 billion. So tax dollars spent on tanks, guns, bullets are all OK. But people like Manchin are wary of any social spending. So in terms of the national economic security of America, can you make a comparison between the two areas of investment in terms of national security?
1: Well, you know, I think we're still kind of in a Cold War mindset. In terms of our leadership in Washington, because all they can talk about is China, China, and China
0: right.
1: uh, as kind of the new adversary that justifies more nuclear weapons, more aircraft carriers, more tanks, more aircraft, a uh, new generation of hypersonic missiles and robotic weaponry and cybersecurity efforts. Um, and so, you know, if you inflate the threat large enough, you can justify pretty much any level of spending. And that's what they're doing. Um, but at the same time, the world is on fire with climate change. Yes. Uh, we've lost more people just in the United States, from COVID-19, than in all the wars since World War One. Um, we've got racial and economic injustice, still rampant. Uh, we've got rising autocracy and anti democratic forces not just globally, but in our own country. Um, All of those things are more of a threat to people's lives and their livelihoods than anything that China could do. Uh, And if we focus on China as kind of the overriding threat, all those other things get neglected to a substantial degree, especially given the fact that the Pentagon wants to spend $7.3 trillion over the next 10 years That money could do a real benefit in dealing with climate, in uh, trying to come up with ways to prevent and ameliorate uh, new pandemics, uh, dealing with economic inequality and poverty. Um, But none of those things are going to happen if the Pentagon gets a blank check. And so this focus on kind of traditional military approaches to security is actually going to cost not just money, but, but lives.
0: As we've seen so far. And it, that's interesting. It, j- just to reiterate, you said that the Pentagon <clears throat> is planning on spending $7.3 trillion over the next 10 years. And what the Congressional Bu- Budget Office recommends uh, or is suggesting is the, a cut of $1 trillion compared to $7.3 trillion over 10 years. One would think... Hmm, possibly they could do that. I mean, the rest of us have to live within a budget, and I know that. I believe this is true that the Pentagon has never had an audit done. So there's this reliable blank check, and a climate of uncaring about costs leads to continued production of troubled weapon systems. What has there ever been an audit? Why is there no audit? And what troubled weapon systems? since they can do any gosh darn thing they want
1: what are some of those troubled weapon systems well uh every agency of the government was required by law 30 years ago to be able to pass an audit and the pentagon's the only major agency that's never done so and they recently once again failed their annual audit just announced in the last little you know, while, um, so that means they can't keep track of how much property they have. They, you know, they'll buy their parts or even bombs when they already have them in their inventories. Uh, companies can do all kinds of ways of ripping off the Pentagon without them being able to track it. Like, you know, there was a period where companies were just setting up false subcontractors collecting money, not producing any goods. All that's harder to detect uh, when you can't pass an audit. So, uh, you know, that's that's sort of one level of, of the waste. Um, and then there's all the systems right. that are bought uh, which don't perform as advertised.
0: And what are some of those?
1: Well, for example, the S35, which is this kind of Rube Goldberg device, <laughs> if anybody remembers who that was. I do. Uh, <laughs> Where um, it was supposed to function for the Air Force as a fighter and a bomber, uh, for the Navy to fly off aircraft carriers, and also close air support for troops in the field. And it doesn't do any of those things particularly well, even compared to current generation aircraft. Uh, It's had major cost overruns. It's hard to keep it flying. It's very complicated to... um, Mm maintain uh it's got a this high-tech helmet that's supposed to tell the pilot what's going on instead of doing it visually or through other uh, technical means uh, which is not working Uh, it can't necessarily communicate very well with troops on the ground even though it's supposed to be supporting them it's smaller uh, because they want it to be stealthy to radar so it doesn't actually carry as many bombs as um you know, the prior generation aircraft. Um, and it doesn't do very well in dogfights against other uh, planes. So there's all these reasons that uh, this thing doesn't make sense to build, but it's built, Lockheed Martin claims, in ah. 46 states. There's a 40-member F-35 caucus in the House. Now they're claiming 250,000 jobs related to it. I think that's a huge exaggeration, but there's enough jobs that they can, you know, persuade a majority of the Congress to keep uh, voting for this thing. Um, so there's that. There's a.
0: And how much does that? Yeah. How much does that cost the F thirty five?
1: Well, in an average year, they'll spend ten or twelve billion on it, which is about similar to the budget of the Centers for Disease Control <laughs> just for that one weapon. Uh, and then over its lifetime, it's the most expensive project undertaken by the Pentagon ever for just that one plane. Uh, they want to spend on the order of $1.5 trillion to buy it and and then operate it. Uh, and as I said, the operating costs are huge. So uh, there's that. They've built uh, a ship for the Navy called the uh, Literal Combat Ship. Not literal like, right? you know, linguistically literal, but literal as able to operate close to shore. Uh, and that also had all these multiple... Purposes, It was going to find mines. It was going to do naval combat. It was going to be fast. It was going to be, uh, but it ends up anyway, uh, as with the F-35, it didn't do any of its assigned functions very well. It had many uh, failing components. Finally, they've kind of ditched it and tried to build a new version. But after a very small number were built, they had to throw their hands up and say, you know, this thing is not, uh, not really a functioning combat ship. Um, And then, you know, you've got things like uh, a new generation of nuclear weapons, which, you know, in a way, Hmm. we might want to hope they don't work. I mean, you know, given what they're for, to end life as we know it. Um, But, um, you know, that, as you mentioned, they want to spend a couple trillion dollars just on new bombers, new ballistic missiles based on land, uh, new ballistic missile launching submarines, new nuclear warheads. Uh, cruise missiles that can fly low under radar. And now they're uh, looking at a whole other array of possible future weapons. So all these things, um, I had the privilege of testifying to Bernie Sanders' budget committee Uh on these issues earlier in the year, and they wanted to talk about waste. And I think, you know, a lot of the focus was waste with small. These overcharges for spare parts, broken acquisition system, failure to uh, pass an audit all of which cost immense amounts of money um but i also said well you know it's also a waste to build weapons you don't need yes <laughs> uh, which brings us the f-35 or weapons that make the world a more dangerous place which brings in the nuclear buildup. so um and also we're wasting our opportunities to address the real things that uh that we should be focusing on if we want to survive on this planet
0: and when you think about the uh, war profiteers over the last, oh, 100 years or so, they make a lot of things that are probably pretty profitable, but, you know, don't do anything. They just bleed the uh, the budget of the uh, taxpayers that are uh, paying for it. And the idea, I would think, is securing we the people, you know, who works for whom. It's like <laughs> they, they call the shots and, and we just say, oh, yeah. Here, have as much money as you can possibly imagine, or actually more than that. If you just tuned in, Burt Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive, and we're talking about our military budget and the idea of possibly uh, reining in the Pentagon with our guest, William Hartung, uh, about uh, a a proposal to cut $1 trillion from the military budget over the next 10-year period. And so you mentioned bernie sanders committee how did the how did the uh, congressional budget
1: Office get pushed to do this study? Well, Senator Sanders requested it um, and you know part of it was to provide kind of a um kind of a sober minded assessment uh, i mean the congressional Budget Office is not an advocacy group uh it's a research group and so they looked at okay if you um didn't need a military that could fight anywhere on the planet on short notice, could you have a smaller military? Yes, you could. Um, If you allow for the fact that you already have nuclear weapons, do you need this huge conventional arsenal? No, you don't. Um, If you have a narrower view of what you need to protect uh, instead of fighting wars of occupation, uh, can you spend less? Absolutely. So they kind of went through that exercise And even under the current strategy, they found they could save that trillion. But it involved, you know, reducing the armed forces by 15 to 20 percent. So instead of 1.4 million plus another 700,000 Guard and Reserve, uh, maybe those two things would be 1.6 million. You know, so still quite a large armed force. And, And given the fact that even on the military front, a lot of the challenges don't lend themselves to large-scale military intervention, as we saw in Iraq and Afghanistan. Right. Um, a reduction in the armed forces is a perfectly viable option, and still maintaining a mm-hmm. larger military than you probably even need. So that I think, in a way, theirs was a, a conservative approach um, compared to what is, you know, should be done. But I think it was an important part of the conversation because it's talking about reductions at a time when Congress is talking about huge increases. So at least it kind of runs against the grain of the Washington debate.
0: Mm. <laughs> and the Washington debate and, and how much money uh, is spent there, it's it's so fascinating how they just focus, you know, it's, it's as that old saying goes, if, if everything looks like, if, if, every, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail, it doesn't work. It You know, there are other ways. Uh, and uh, the, the military budget uh, compared to like uh, the uh, uh, State Department budget and uh, the Agency for International Development. Uh, and just you compare the, the just the contracts for Lockheed Martin compared to the combined budgets of the State Department and the Agency for International Development. In terms of real national security, how nuts is that?
1: Well, Lockheed Martin got... 75 billion in Pentagon contracts last year, which I believe is a record, although the records don't go back more than 20, 30 years or so. Um, And by comparison, the State Department and the Agency of International Development together got about 50, so one and a half times as much money for just one weapons contractor, which tells you a lot about our priorities. I mean, President Biden uh, has said we have to put diplomacy first yes. well he can't do that with that resource allocation and to his credit he's he's tried to increase the state department budget but he has not gone um, after the pentagon budget which i think is necessary if you're really going to shift to a more diplomatic approach to your foreign policy and you know there
0: was a lot of us hoped for a peace dividend uh, after our war in vietnam there, there was no peace dividend But there have been actual decreases made in the defense budget uh, over the years. Talk about that,
1: please. I mean, it's not without precedent. No. At the end of the Cold War, uh, the Pentagon budget was reduced by about 30%, uh, which is more than twice this uh, Congressional budget office proposal that was made in their recent report. Um, So it certainly can be done um, and it has been done. The problem is it creeps up again. You know, new threats are created, new arguments are made, the money starts flowing again. So, in the in the nineties, uh, when this reduction happened, um, the late Colin Powell said, um, "You know, I'm running out of enemies here."
0: Yeah.
1: You know, meaning, right. you know, there's, how how can we justify these budgets? And they actually had to scramble to keep the cuts from going deeper because the Soviet Union had collapsed, and that was their prime reason that they gave for spending all this money. Um, so they came up with this new rationale, which was two major regional conflicts. Might have to fight Iran, might have to fight Iraq, might have to fight North Korea. And and if we need overwhelming force to do that, then, you know, surprise, surprise, we need a lot of the weapons that we already have. So, so that happened, you know, at that juncture. And now when we should have seen Some reductions as a result of getting out of Afghanistan, Uh, our presence in Iraq is much smaller than it was, you know, five years ago. And yet we haven't seen any substantial reductions in Pentagon spending. And it's because of the new argument that we, you know, what about China? And this was kind of enshrined in the Trump administration's 2018 national defense strategy written by James Mattis who coincidentally is a former board member of General Dynamics. Mm. Um, And then there was a congressional commission that kind of, you know, endorsed this strategy. uh, And more than half of the members of that body were either um, ex-military board of uh, arms companies, consultants to the arms industry, funded, their think tanks funded by the arms industry. So we didn't get this sort of objective view of what, you yeah. know, is needed to defend us. We got this sort of self-interested view, and a lot of these folks operate in a bubble where they don't even think about it in a way. I mean, they're cashing in, but they've also got this worldview that kind of ends up benefiting them You know, by, by this kind of threat inflation that I mentioned.
0: <laughs> and uh, there's no war... No problem, but we still got to keep shoveling money at them faster than they can they can imagine it. You write that the arms industry's lobbying efforts are especially insidious, end of your quote. I've been watching uh, the series uh, Dope Sick, in which there is a revolving door between regulators and the addictive drug industry, Purdue Pharma specifically, uh, that makes OxyContin. And we all have a sense that it's there but tell us some facts about the revolving door between the arms industry and the Defense Department that we just touched on a minute ago. What does a dollar invested in lobbying by these companies return to the arms makers? How does this process lead to
1: exploding budgets? Well, every year, the weapons industry averages about 700 lobbyists that they employ, either in house or with you know, private lobbying firms. And so that's well more than one for every member of Congress. And of course, when they're dealing with the armed services committees or the appropriations committees that make the key decisions about how much these companies are gonna get, they can just flood the zone, uh, given the number of lobbyists they have. The peace movement has some lobbyists, um, might be five, might be 10. Uh, so it's it's a definitely a David and Goliath enterprise. Um, and then uh, my colleagues at Project and Government Oversight figured out, you know, based on what they spend on lobbying campaign contributions, they get about nineteen hundred dollars for every dollar they invest in political influence. So there's there's no investment in the world, uh, not even probably uh, not even Bitcoin on a good day, that uh, you know gives you that kind of return.
0: One to 19. Yeah, that ain't bad. That ain't bad. Oh my goodness. And it, it, I, I, you know, I don't know how we just keep uh, keeping at it. But it is a lot about jobs. And as you and I know, I mean, for anybody studying history of the 20th century at all seriously, knows that the Great Depression of the 30s and 40s finally ended with World War II. World War II was what put the nail in the coffin to the Great Depression. But the reason for that was not the war itself, but government spending, creating a huge wave of jobs. As you know, quote, the Pentagon has been desperate to shed costly and unnecessary military facilities. Perhaps the greatest block to shedding excess capacity is members of Congress. The prospect of closing facilities in their district of course, faces stiff resistance. It's the jobs they create. Locals object mightily to base closures. Is there ever talk of full-use strategic planning, conversion of these huge facilities to more productive peacetime use? And if not, why not? There are tremendous possibilities at these facilities for new sustainable jobs.
1: Well, I did a a look at just one element of the arms lobby, which is the lobby for land-based ballistic missiles, which are probably the most dangerous weapons in the world. Uh, And one of the reasons it's been impossible to scale back the numbers, to cut the budget, to keep them from building a new generation of them, um, to eliminate them altogether, which would be the safest course. Um, The reason that hasn't happened is partly because there's a coalition in the Senate called the Senate ICBM coalition. And it's made up of senators from the states that have ICBM bases and also from Utah where they do a lot of development work on ICBMs. So these are small states, Montana, Wyoming, uh-huh. North Dakota, but but their um, senators have this disproportionate clout uh, partly because at times when the Senate's at play, neither party wants to lose Senator, and so they're not going to do anything that, you know, puts their uh, elections at risk. And these these bases employ a few thousand people each. Yes, uh, and they're in, you know, they're one of them is in a city of sixty thousand people. Uh, Some of them, you know, it's it's a couple of percentage points of the employment of the state that they're based in, uh, maybe ten or twelve percent of the locality. So they're important economic factors and for some of these uh, places the economies are not very diversified so it's not easy to transition to something else but uh-huh. there have been uh, places where this has been done quite effectively um, you know there's uh, the uh, Pentagon has what used to be called the Office of Economic Adjustment uh-huh. they've now changed changed the name to a new acronym but anyway they uh, their job was to help communities address the economic impacts of base closings. Mm -hmm. And they did a a case study of three dozen places where many more jobs were created after the base was closed uh, for things like community colleges, commuter airports, industrial parks, parkland. um, And, you know, with tens of thousands of net increase in jobs across those 36 uh, facilities. So, it can be done, and of course, if we were investing in the things we should be uh, on the domestic front, it would be even easier to do that because there'd be ways to um, bring funds in uh, that could replace the funds that are being spent for things like ICBM bases. So um, it's possible to do. And then politically, there was a process called base realignment and closure, or BRAC, where they had a mm-hmm. they'd have an independent committee. So it would make a list of bases that weren't needed and it had to be an up or down vote on the whole thing. Mm-hmm. So it took a little bit of the pork drill politics out of it. You know, nobody could have to say, Oh, I voted against this base in my state. And when they were able to do that, they did close a significant number of bases, but then in the Clinton years, they tried to do an end run around it by um, privatizing some of the bases. So the jobs would still be there. They weren't really saving any money. Um, so, so that got Congress's up, and, and then one of the rounds, a lot of it was shuffling people around more than closing bases that didn't save as much money. So they pointed to that So, that oh, see, it's not a big money saver, but it's because it wasn't really a rigorous base closing exercise. It was kind of a rearranging the deck chairs and the Titanic kind of thing. Um, so anyway, so there are, there's kind of a political way that it can be done. There's some economic alternatives, and it would be even easier if we invested in um, our economy and not in weapons that don't really advance our economic interests, much less uh, defend us in many cases.
0: One would think, but then again, that's so logical, <laughs> that probably will never happen. Uh, and one would think that there's obviously, I mean, given the uh, – I guess it's greenwashing or or whatever, that the big corporations are trying to sound more environmentally conscious now. Obviously, they get the message. And, you know, the word sustainability and alternative energy is more popular now than before. And I would think, but then again, it's Congress, that if they put, you know, converting big military facilities uh, into like... Building f- high-speed rail cars, things like that. You know, they could do that, uh, and I, I would think the public support might start to be there. But then again, you know, uh, they like to avoid any uh, any challenges or anything that's uh, at all controversial. They just, you know, people. We have it now. It if it ain't broke, don't fix it. There's the old saying uh, that we used to say in the New Hampshire State Senate anyway, that uh, did they just keep going on the way they are. No war, no problem. Just keep shoveling the money in there. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is keeping democracy alive. And we're talking about, eh, I think, a threat to our democracy, the power of the military over our budget. Our guest today is uh, William Hartung. And he uh, is director of the Arms and Security Program at the Center for International Policy and author of the newly published Profits of War, Corporate Beneficiaries of the Post-9-11 Surge in Pentagon Spending. And in this $1 trillion reduction that uh, the the Congressional Budget Office devised, uh, there's three different approaches to getting to that $1 trillion. It sounds huge, but you argue it's actually a modest proposal. Um, And no doubt the crowd that believes the military can do no wrong and its budget is sacrosanct would freak out at that. But as you say, the options in the budget watchdog's new report are anything but radical. And there are three uh, different parts of that. What is option one? And then we can go through that and,
1: and two and three. Well, basically, the first option is a variation on what exists now. You know, a large nuclear arsenal, uh, being able to kind of go to fight, you know, be it fight China, be it fight in a, you know, where Iraq to occupy a neighboring country. Uh, the only difference being it might take a little longer to get there. So it wouldn't be like quite as fast a reaction force, but it would basically have the same goals uh, and it would be a slightly smaller force uh, cut by about uh, 14%, as I mentioned before. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's the first one. Uh, Then the second one is, um, has similarities, but it would rely less on, um, you know, boots on the ground kind of wars it would um, kind of have a surge capacity to go to regions of conflict rather than have, you know, this global Navy and 800 military bases and so forth. Um, and then the third one is even more modest in its objectives in some way. It, it's like protect the global commons, you know, uh, sea and mm-hmm. air and space, basically the ability to move goods, to conduct commerce to not have that sort of uh, choked off by some kind of military right. activity uh, and that's even even more than option two that leans against boots on the ground wars and says we'll use what they call over the horizon techniques so that's drones and long range missiles and uh, perhaps even naval blockades um, so these are still you know this is still a war strategy it's it's just a different war strategy
0: well isn't that i mean we wars often are fought about keeping trade routes open uh, world war 1 a whole bunch of them. Uh, but that is that not legitimate i mean you know we talk about uh, uh, china they're moving very heavily into africa which has a huge shoreline and you know if they they, they possibly or somebody else could cause trouble uh, you know, in, with regard to shipping and, th- and things like that. And could that, the, the military capability there, using drones and naval blockades, et cetera, no-fly zones, th- th- that's that's kind of defensive of shipping lanes. Is that not, and isn't that, isn't that something we kind of need to do?
1: Well, I think, you know, as I see it, in, in the current global economy, the um, you know, I think everybody wants commerce to flow. I mean, China trades with almost every country in the world. Um, So it's not like Nazi Germany using U-boats to, you know, sink American merchant marine ships in the middle of a war. Um, So in that sense, I think you don't need that kind of military force of that size and with that many militaristic tactics to make sure the commerce still flows. Now there's, you know, there's choke points like in the Persian Gulf. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think in those cases, we need to rethink our, you know, do we need these huge military bases there? Do we need this level of antagonism with Iran? Uh, do we need to be supporting dictatorships like Saudi Arabia that are right. slaughtering tens and hundreds of thousands of people in Yemen? Um, you know, kind of a, a new approach that doesn't have that gigantic military footprint, which itself can be provocative. Yeah, uh, and sure. we need to, to kind of push back um that, that puts those trade routes at risk. Um, so, yeah, I think that there's there's a need to make sure commerce flows, but I'm not sure even the um, you know the, the, that version of the Congressional Budget office strategy, I think overstates how much you would need the military to to bring that about.
0: Mm. And no doubt most people's first reaction to the idea of cutting one trillion dollars, from is that that would be a huge cut. But you're right, looking more broadly at the question of what will make the world safer in an era of pandemics, climate change, racial injustice, and economic inequality, reductions well beyond the $1 trillion figure embedded in the recommendations would be both necessary and possible in a more reasonable American world end of quote. What do you mean by more reasonable American world? So even with these cuts, we could still
1: maintain global hegemony? Well, yes. And then the question is, is that the right goal? You know, I mean, it's it's sort of the interesting thing about these scenarios is that it still presumes the United States is the dominant global military power. And given that a lot of the problems... That we face don't have military solutions, you know. Is that the right goal? Right. And and if you if you rethink that, then that trillion dollars is just a down payment on what you could reduce. Back in the late '60s,
0: optimistic hopefulness, some of us thought maybe thrusting lead into the flesh of other people might no longer be the optimum way of conducting foreign policy. We did hope that. In this vein, you write the CBO's. Scenarios remain focused on military methods for solving security problems, assuring an all-too-narrow view of what might be saved by a new approach to security. And what might that new approach be?
1: Well, I think you put the military down the list in terms of you know what you need to protect yourself. So you focus on techniques to reduce the impacts of pandemics, Uh, public health systems being more, uh, you know, effective and operative uh, investments in vaccines and ways to head off new diseases, um, various investments for climate resilience, for electric vehicles, for uh, production and energy techniques that don't involve fossil fuels. I think all those things should be uh, given priority over, yet another aircraft carrier or a nuclear weapons buildup or maintaining 2 million people under arms if you include reserves as well as the active duty military. So, yeah, know, the, there's probably scenarios where, you know, you might need military force to to protect, but it, I don't think they're the main problems. And so I, I think it's kind of flip the investment uh, strategy to, to focus on, Um, things that really affect our everyday lives and and put us at much greater risk than, you know, China putting up some bases in the South China Sea.
0: It's... uh already started happening and, uh, you know, ratcheting up the uh, the Cold War talk. Uh, certainly, uh, the, the Trumpists have tried to say, and they've said it over and over again, the old big lie theory, that if you say it enough, people believe it, that Biden is weak on China. So, of course, that does kind of put the Biden administration in a bit of a box because they don't want to look weak on China. And who knows what the heck could happen there. But I mean, there are these nuclear bombs that we have so many of it's absolute insanity, and you know, they're, they're, the idea is just to let them gather dust and to never be used. Uh, they're supposed to be uh, you know, a threat. But you say that one significant step toward nuclear sanity would be to adopt the alternative nuclear posture proposed by the organization Global Zero. I hadn't heard of them. Tell us about that proposal, please.
1: You know, as their name implies, their ultimate goal is to eliminate nuclear weapons. Uh, But as a step along the way, uh, they talk about uh, a deterrence-only strategy, which means the only reason to have nuclear weapons is to dissuade another country from attacking you. And so, therefore, you don't need an arsenal of thousands of nuclear weapons. Uh, You know, they say, well, first of all, you can get rid of land-based nuclear missiles because they're more of a danger than a protection. In a crisis, the president would have a few minutes to decide whether to launch those missiles. And so if there was a false alarm, you'd have an accidental nuclear war that could end civilization. So there's no reason to take that risk. And then they talk about a, a smaller fleet, about half as many as they're being projected of Ballistic missile firing submarines, and then a reserve force of bombers. So basically, the idea is it's it's still in this logic of deterrence that you know some nuclear weapons prevent another co- country from attacking you. Uh, but their hope that it would is that it would cool the temperature to the point where there could be discussions about uh, going lower. And I think certainly with China, given that they're now talking about uh, you know potentially building up their ballistic missile force investing in other kinds of weapons that may have nuclear implications. Um, This is the time to start having talks about these things, not investing in new ones.
0: That makes a lot of sense. Now is specifically a particularly good time to to, uh, do some talks. And I started out talking about North Korea. And, you know, it occurs to me in the name of national security, it seems that they're really weakening themselves, and I I tend to think we're doing that too. And we're talking about the idea of of making some real, not even major cuts, really. That's it's not a huge percentage. That the ten or or the one trillion dollars over ten years, that's not really that huge of a cut, is it?
1: No, no, Uh, it's you know maybe fifteen percent. You know, it's 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 it would barely get us back to where we were before. 911. Uh, I mean, it wouldn't even go back that far. So uh, it, it would just be like a course correction. Um, you know, if we really had a thorough look at what would be the best strategy to defend us, we could go much deeper. Mm-hmm. Uh, my colleagues at the Institute for Policy Studies, National Priorities Project, worked with the Poor People's Campaign to come up with a people's moral budget. Right. And they laid out a scenario where you could cut the Pentagon budget pretty much in half. So much deeper than what the CBO report calls for. And basically, you know, you get rid of the foreign bases, you know, modernize the nuclear weapons systems. Um, you make deeper cuts in size of the military than the CBO contemplates. You know, there's a way to get there. Even things like, you know, if we had a national health plan, and mm-hmm. the, the troops could be on that instead of a very expensive way that they provide health care for, you know, members of their forces and retirees. So there's there's all kinds of ways to save money that go far beyond what the, um, you know, the CBO looked at. But I think the CBO deserves credit for saying, you know, they they were given like a certain scenario and said, you know, within this set of scenarios, Uh could you, could you spend less? And they said, you know, absolutely. Yes, you can.
0: Interesting, and it 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 seems to make a lot of sense to talk about it. And when people voted uh, Trump out and Biden in, I think they we wanted a course correction. I think that was largely a, me- a message that uh, we still people still have to make noise about that. And 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 people think, well, there's nothing I can do. There's a lot you can do. It, it's you'd be surprised. Members of Congress actually do listen. And we talked, of course, about climate change and global warming. Now, I mean, that that's a threat to many of our military bases. What's the potential impact of sea level rise? How many bases might be impacted by this? And I wonder if this reality can be factored into military budget reduction.
1: Well, you know, there's probably something like 1,700 domestic foreign bases that would put a risk by rise of sea level related to climate change. So, um, you know, the thing is a lot of those bases aren't needed, but if they try to sustain them, they will lose huge amounts of facilities, probably equipment, uh, and then, you know, absent a, a new approach to security, try to replace all that. At, you know at a cost of tens or hundreds of billions of dollars so you know given that that threat is there and these bases aren't necessary in a rational security strategy um there's all the more reason to to close a lot of them down
0: And it does kind of antagonize people and provoke them. And uh, you you talk about Iran and Iraq. I mean, we're always looking around for for new enemies, new bad guys. But, uh, uh, you know, provoking them, yeah, we've done a lot of that. And, uh, hey, I suppose it's great for the uh, military budget. And you talked about land-based intercontinental ballistic missiles. They've been around a long time. And I wonder, would there be a downside Strategically, in terms of our security, would there be a downside to eliminating just eliminating the land-based intercontinental ballistic missiles, the ICBMs?
1: Well, I think there'd be an upside uh, because, you know, given the risks they pose of an accidental war, the fact that the warheads on submarines submarines are not vulnerable to attack the way a ballistic missile is—they're basically sitting ducks for an attacking power. Because the much vaunted missile defense system that's been had money wasted on it since the days of Ronald Reagan and before doesn't work against long range ballistic missiles. Missiles are too fast, they're too unpredictable. They can use decoys, so you don't know which is no, a warhead, really. which is a decoy. So basically, those missiles could be taken out early in the nuclear war. And of course, all of this is in that twisted logic of. The Pentagon, where you start talking about, you know, this and that thing that would happen during a nuclear war. Well, you know, the fact is, exchange of a few hundred of the thousands of nuclear warheads that exist would, as uh, physicians for social responsibility has calculated, um, lead to a nuclear winter, it would kill agriculture, you'd have famines. So even the even the millions who are killed by the blast, that would just be the beginning. Uh, oh, there would be billions of people starving as a result of a nuclear exchange that didn't even use all the weapons that exist. So, um, we, in other words, we seeing, could do without them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, we could certainly do without them, and 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 it's there's sort of this danger when you fall into that Pentagon logic about nuclear weapons of well, if we did this and then they did that, and what if we did this? Well, if we did this and they did that, that's the end. There's no what happens after that. <laughs> that's um, sure.
0: As noted at the start, there's a routine practice of shoveling ever more funds to the Pentagon, no questions asked. Could it be that members of Congress and other pressure groups are starting to get the message from sources like the one you cite? A new poll from Eurasia Group Foundation found twice as many Americans now support cutting the Pentagon budget as support increasing it. You use the phrase glimmers of hope, and not just from the predictable
1: liberal groups. Tell us about that, please. Well... There's, there's been a long-standing libertarian opposition to high Pentagon budgets. Um, and so that persists. And there's other conservative arguments as well, which are related to uh, opposition to the endless wars. So there, there is a, a pocket of folks. In fact, you know Trump, he, he campaigned on that the Iraq war was a disaster. Uh, that we're bailing out these countries and they don't appreciate us. All this sort of argument appealed to his base. He didn't follow through on any of it. But the reason he was saying it is because there were people, even within that circle, that thought we were um, involved in too many wars and spending too much on the Pentagon. He even gave a speech where he talked about, you know, missile makers lobbying the Congress for missiles we don't need. So, you know, he knew how to pull, the, pull those levers or, those strings, whatever the right metaphor is, um, and, and so there is, I think, a potential uh, to, to reach people across the spectrum and saying, you know, enough is enough, and give, especially given the other things that we need. Now, you know, some of the groups on the right they're more concerned about the deficit and the debt, and they would probably want to spend the money to, to work on that problem. Whereas a lot of the progressive groups say, well, we've got all these unmet needs that have to be addressed. But in terms of the, you know, the kind of short-term question of are we spending too much on the Pentagon, you can build a bigger uh, coalition yes. uh, than one might have expected.
0: I, I would think so. I think that's a unique time. I mean, uh, Rand Paul, I disagree with him on everything except this issue. And, you know, maybe there's there's some real potential there, I think. And talk of cutting defense spending has been with us for decades, yet the needle fails to move. The prospect of significant cuts in our defense budget reminds me of the talk of defunding the police after their many abuses. And we can see where that got us. It did just the opposite. In both cases, I worry it could stiffen the backs of militarists. Perhaps the greatest obstacle to a more sensible and effective defense policy is the mindset of many in Congress. And that is that the military is their first job, greatest priority. Do you see any prospects of this mindset changing?
1: And what can people do? Well, there's... The beginnings of, uh, there's a core of members who have now taken a stand for cutting the Pentagon budget. Um, some of the leaders are Senator Sanders, Representative Ro Khanna of California, Representative Barbara Lee, the only one who voted against uh, the Afghan war and the uh, Patriot Act, um, Representative Mark Pocan of Wisconsin. There's a defense saving caucus in the House. There's been... Um, Resolutions brought to cut 10% from the Pentagon budget. On the one hand, they lost. On the other hand, it was the first time in probably more than a decade that somebody had stood up on the floor of the Congress and said, you know, we got to reduce this budget. So in that sense, it's a sense of progress. Uh, the majority of the Democratic caucus, including all the leadership, voted against the $25 billion increase that the Hawks were pushing for. So, so there's a core of members who have begun to, to say and do the right things on this but they're not it's not large enough yet so you know uh these other members need to hear from their constituents yes and saying you know we there's a lot of things we need a lot more desperately and we need to throw more money at the pentagon mm. and as you said it can make a difference um you know they hear so much from the arms lobbyists and the the money that they spend, and the fact that they hire former staffers to lobby their old bosses and so forth. Um, But we've had cases where we've been able to win victories with, uh, you know, just people power. Uh, Just, you know, we talked about the Pentagon and jobs. So the only job that a member might care about more than a job created by the Pentagon is their own job. Yes. (laughs) And so in that sense, if people really demand this, I, th- I think we can move some of these folks in the right direction.
0: Is there some uh, connection you can point people to so that they can keep up with uh, military spending and, and you know any organization that can be uh, helpful in, in making this uh, change and course correction happen?
1: Yes. Uh, there's a coalition called People Over Pentagon, which has uh, immigrant rights groups, climate change groups, political reform groups, and also uh, you know, arms control groups that's been working together on this problem. And they have a website. There's also the Friends Committee on National Legislation, which does a very good job of highlighting the key moments when Congress needs to hear from folks. Uh, there's groups like Women Without War, which do regular education, petitioning, uh, take on a whole range of war and peace issues. Uh, there's Peace Action, which is the largest national right. uh, grassroots peace organization. Which is active. They have some good chapters in uh, New England, in Massachusetts, New Hampshire. Um, so there are places to connect with, and the advantage of that is you don't feel like you're doing it alone. And also, right. they do a lot of the the digging as yes. to what's happening and what needs to be done in response. So it's it's always good to somehow connect with an organization on some level uh, if if you want to have an impact on these issues.
0: Absolutely. It can make a difference. Uh, and there is a glimmer of hope. We like to end on a positive note. William Hartung, new book is called Profits of War, Corporate Beneficiaries of the Post-9-11 Surge in Pentagon Spending. We're talking about uh, realistic ways to uh, reduce the military budget and increase our actual national security. Thanks so much for being with us today.
1: Oh, yes. Always a pleasure.
0: Keeping Democracy Alive, twice a week, every week. Subscribe. Don't miss a single one. On the website, Apple Podcast, Spotify, or Stitcher.